Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. It's that time of the week when we put out an episode of the podcast that went out years ago that most of you won't have listened to because you weren't in on the action that early on. You weren't early adopters of the History Hit podcast. Well, luckily you're here now and you'll be able to listen to it because it's a classic. This features the geographer Nicholas Crane, who many of you will know as the guy who presented the television series Coast in Britain and went on to make other shows like Map Man and Town as well. But in fact, he's a brilliant writer and has been both before and since those BBC shows. I first came across him when he brilliantly walked from northwest Spain, Santiago de Compostela, along the Pyrenees. He noticed that you could walk from one end of Europe to another virtually along mountain ranges. So he walked along the Pyrenees, skibdaddled over the south of France, got into the Alps. Then from the Alps, you're in the Carpathians and all the rest of it. And he got to Istanbul. Unbelievable. Anyway, he subsequently wrote another even more important and brilliant book about the British landscape. It's a history of the British landscape and how much us humans have messed with it. I love this podcast. It was so interesting talking to him. So I hope you enjoy it. If you want to watch TV shows, don't forget you can go and do so at historyhit.tv. It's our digital history channel where all of these back episodes of the podcast are without any ads. And we've also got a huge number of documentaries, which are, which are growing by two or three every week. Always new material going on there. But at the moment, First Britain is the most watched show ever on History at TV. Mesolithic, Stone Age. I mean, where are my 18th century fans, folks? Come on, let's do this. And if you really want to listen to wonderful historians in the flesh, come to our live tour. It's historyat.com slash tour. We'll see you all there. In the meantime, everyone, here is the very brilliant Nick Crane. Hello everyone, right, I've got Nicholas Crane here, presenter of many TV shows, bit of a legend here in the UK and writer of this enormous book. You often have an umbrella in your backpack, not this time. We're going to talk about this big book, but first of all, I'm going to admit to being a little bit of a secret fanboy, Nicholas Crane. When I was travelling, I was on my gap year, I was backpacking and we didn't have any phones, we didn't have any things, that we had to read books and you'd stop in hostels and there'd been knackered old books lying around it. And I picked up this book, I'd never heard of you, I'd never, it was a book about a maniac guy who walked across Europe from the Atlantic, the crashing water of the Atlantic, all the way to Istanbul via only using the mountains. It was a brilliant, it was such a simple idea, I can't believe I'd never seen it before. Pyrenees, Alps, uh, Carpathians, yep, that's right, yeah, yeah. Carpathians, and that big, huge, must be very annoying, huge semicircle, and then down to Istanbul. And I just remember thinking it was the coolest book ever. And then years later, I found out that you were the guy that written it. And of course, I'd seen you on TV shows ever since. 
Yeah, no, it was a very. I like simple ideas, and that was just a watershed walk. So I was walking from west to east with my left boot effectively in northern temperate Europe, my right boot in warm Mediterranean Europe, right the way across the continent, one side to other. And I thought lots of other people were going to do the same walk afters, but I don't think anyone's ever done it. Oh again. no, I thought. Yeah, I assumed it would become a bit of a thing. It's too hardcore. That's why no one's else done it. But but you had to. You, you did. You did all the unglamorous bits as well. You know, between the Pyrenees and the Alps, you had to like go and sleep in under motorway sort of um, underpasses and stuff like that, didn't you? Yeah, there, there, there were only two sections where. Where, the, where I was out of the mountains for a day, one was crossing uh, the Rhone and the other Only was crossing the sections. Danube. Yeah, and both both you can walk across both those river valleys in a day, and uh, and they were interesting in their own right. I mean, you're you're a man who understands battlefields, but uh, uh, in in that gap where the uh, where the Danube flows between the end of the Alps and the beginning of the Carpathians, you've got Vienna, Bratislava battlefields um, yep. and uh, Roman Carnuntum. I slept in Roman Carnuntum in the, bra- in the barracks there just to kind of rekindle those Roman connections. And uh, so even even the flat areas had, had yep. stories. But I, I didn't even realise it was only two days. Out of that is an amazing thing. You have written so well about sort of geography and historical geography over the years. You're weaving together of the geography and the history in that book was so impressive. And of course, this is your, this is, everyone is saying and I agree. This is the this is the absolute best book to be written on that on that subject. In certainly in terms of the British Isles, the making of the British landscape. The older I get, the more I study history and look at history and think about history. It does seem to me that the geography is absolutely vital. We all toss on about you know European empires, and of course it's all about malaria and disease and about rivers and and the Congo being unnavigable, but the Zambezi being more navigable than not. You know, it's actually we are we are simply little fleas that exist on the rump of this vast planet. And the geography absolutely shapes it. It's a, it's a, it's a, tr- it's a tricky relationship, isn't it? <clears throat> that sliding scale of geographical determinism. I mean, how far along that scale do you allow yourself to go in, in, in deciding that geography shapes history? And I, it's, a, it's tricky. And I think you actually have to choose your point on that scale between geography and history according to the, the story you're trying to tell. Yeah. And in this particular one, with, with landscape, it's, it's quite far towards the geographical end. I think... Because you know history is very, very good at events. Geography is quite good at processes, and so you just have to choose where on that scale you're going to be. And with evolving landscapes, it's it's quite far towards the processes yeah. end. So there's not a lot of scope for talking about battles in a in a book about landscape, but there is a there is occasionally scope for talking about monarchs who. Oh, actually, there's only one monarch I can think of, King Alfred, who who actually had oh, an emphatic effect on landscape, but. And, and the Romans, of course, and so you get you get historical events that can can affect. Well, let's break it all down into chronology, but briefly, I do feel a bit naughty, you know, admiring people like Jared Diamond and you, and who point out these these huge things that are, that are often slightly beyond the human visual spectrum, uh, whether it's microbes, whether it's um, natural resources that lie under the soil. And I think I was raised in an era where it was still very much the history is talking about great great men. It was about these geniuses who just bestrode the narrow earth like colossi. And I think the, the, the more... The, the more of these kind of books, the more of this kind of thinking that goes on, I think we'll all have a richer and deeper understanding of the past. So thank you. Well, I'm, I'm very flattered by everything you're saying, Dan, because uh, this, this, this was a long project. Um, how, did, how long did it take? Uh, it took me eight years to write, and I've been thinking about it for about 30 years. Um, you must start as a child, so, Nicholas. Well, I, I, there's a man called W.G. Hoskins who, who published a book in 1955 called The Making of the English Landscape, and all geography undergraduates who are as ancient as I am had to know that book by heart. It was the book that introduced historical geography to, to students, and this is what you're talking about, the idea that geography can shape history. 
and um, it's, 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 it was a, it was a old, uh, overused word, but it's a seminal book, and uh, we had to know it by heart, effectively. And I'd often looked at it and thought well, maybe I could, you know, revisit it and update it because fifty-five is a long time ago. And and Hoskins started. It was a it was a book about the English landscape. So he, of course, started with the Anglo-Saxons. And he finishes, of, of course, in 1955. He doesn't cover Scotland and Wales. So I, I thought, well, maybe there's a bigger story if I was to bring in Scotland and is, Wales yeah. and then go back to the end of the Younger Dryas, this, this Ice Age moment. Right, yeah. so you go back 12,000 years, the yeah. end of the... Let's just let's take this book on chronologically. I should say we are streaming this podcast on our Facebook page, Dinosaur's History Hit. Uh, hello, everybody, on Facebook. If you've got questions, we will answer them at the end. Uh, we are just, um, we will we'll talk about the book first, then we're going to have some questions for, for Nicholas. Are you Nick or Nicholas? Nick, Nick's Nick, fine. Nick, Nick, Nick. Let's call him Nick. We're casual here. Okay, so 12,000 years ago. Here we go. Let's start. Book one. Right, so I said, even I know, we were not an island at that stage. So what happened? Yeah, so um, let's go back to about uh, 10,000 BC. And Britain is the frigid glacial extremity of a continuous landmass that reaches the whole way from here to Kamchatka in Eastern Asia and south to Table Mountain in Southern Africa. So, and we're connected to the continent, not across what's now the English Channel, but across what is now the North Sea between mm. East Anglia and Northern Germany. Glass is in Scotland, 400 metres of ice sitting on top of Rannoch Moor, great glen full of ice. Um, glass is in the Lake District um, and in Wales. And then an episode of extreme climate change temperature bounces up by about 7 degrees centigrade wow. in as little as 50 years. What? So it is absolutely oh mad, That's chaotic. Crazy. Um, and uh, so all of this ice just falls apart. Uh, Scotland, and were there people living... No, there's no people in Britain. No, okay, no, okay, good. So, so okay. this is... This is the, I, should, I should go back. So while we have the ice here, it is... The temperatures are down to minus 17. It is far too cold for human beings. They've all retreated south of the continent. Yeah. Um, so this is the beginning of the story. Britain is uninhabited. There are animals here. We have wolves, uh, reindeer probably coming across the land bridge in summer, a wild horse, lemming, step piker. Very, very cold. But when the, we, we go through this episode of extreme climate change, temperature bounces up and people move across the land bridge, now known as Doggerland, across what's now the North Sea. And they're following the herds of, of wild range and wild horse. And there are about 30-odd sites of these early sites that and, open the story. And so these people are um, migrants. They, they're, they're not settled agricultural people. So actually, for them, the climate change isn't the end of the world. They just follow the herds wherever they're going. They're, they're quite flexible. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, the highly flexible. And they're, they're, they're adapting all the time to the changing climate. So they, they follow the herds. They're hunters. They're foragers. They're, they're wild people you know i mean they're they are really um you know they're kind of the prototypical ray mirrors of the world they're out there <laughs> out there doing it for real with with flint tools and uh and uh, lighting fires to keep warm at night and hunting and the, the one one of the one of the reindeer was killed on probably what's now uh, heathrow airport and dragged to the edges of the colne valley and that was one of the early sites where Uxbridge is now how fantastic okay so then what else but this climate change all that ice melts presumably so yeah. Stuff's going to happen. So cut, cut a long story quite short. Uh, yeah. 12,000 year story. So the ice melts and uh, and people walk across the land bridge and they colonise uh, a peninsula, a European peninsula. This is greening very rapidly indeed. So trees move in fairly briskly. It's not a kind of march of pines northwards. So seeds are being blown on the winds. So you get these little pockets of trees growing up all over the place and the willow that and, and, and dwarf birch and so on are being replaced by more enduring species, the pine followed by obviously the, the broad leaves after that. Until we have a, a, a time argued, well, it's difficult to say, but maybe 
four to five thousand BC when we have uh, tree cover across most of Britain, probably about sixty percent tree cover. Okay, and um, maximum ten thousand people. And how's our landscape changed? Oh, uh, these big, these these river, the gl- sort of glacial valleys and all that kind of stuff. That I remember from my geography when I was a kid, uh, the glaciers are retreating, leaving these enormous valleys up, especially in the north of the island. That's right. So, uh, so you get so where, for example, you've got uh, Wasdale's Wasdale screen. So you've got you've got uh, U-shaped glacial valleys, classic U-shape. You, you take away the ice, the valleys collapse, leaving these huge scree slopes, and then you have the moraines pushed down by the glaciers. When the ice melts, you get these ro- these the ridges of, of rubble and, and sand and so on. So the, there's a ridge in North Norfolk between Cromer and Holt. To this day, it's, 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 it's the only mountain range in Norfolk, and that, that's an old moraine. There's a huge lake um, formed uh, behind Scarborough in the Vale of Pickering. There's no lake there now. It's all been drained. But back in the Mesolithic, that was a wonderful kind of hunting, foraging ground. A shallow lake, maybe chest deep. And that was the first known post-glacial landscape. So that was where archaeologists have found stake holes of circular huts and, uh, and a headdress that's now in the British Museum. And presumably water was a huge benefit. Obviously, it's fresh water for drinking and fish and things, but also water f- for trade. It's easier to travel on water than it is on land until very recently in our history. So, so these are sort of littoral or, 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 or riverine maritime communities that are springing up, are they? Yeah, so, so, so what, what Mesolithic communities like are ecotones, these, these transition zones between uh, the coast and, and inland where you, you can, you've got a broader scope for surviving. So you can forage along the seashore in the intertidal zone, but also you can just stray inland to, to pick off animals in the woodland and higher up. And, um, and the rivers were absolutely critical. One of the, in, in, and it's fascinating to ask the question, why has Britain been so successful? Because we have, you know, it's a, a remarkably successful island. And one of the reasons is the rivers, as you pointed out, we have a thousand river systems, roughly, in, in this country, and they're all short and fast. We don't, you know, the longest rivers in Britain are only one-eighth the length of the Danube, <laughs> which means they're all easy to cross. So if you're... If you're following herds cross country, and it's very easy to walk a thousand miles in a in a in a year. I, yeah, what did I walk? I walked uh, six thousand miles in a year and a half. So back then, it was completely straightforward to walk from one end to the other of Britain and back again huh. in a year. They wouldn't have thought that was odd. <laughs> Amazing. And um, and none of these rivers are too big to cross, and so you are never more probably than five or ten minutes from fresh water, which means survival is 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 mm. is, is inc- the chance of survival is, is rapidly you know, vastly increased by having access to fresh water. Britain is nice and wet. It is very wet. Um, okay, so let's go. So we so keep, keep, this is so exciting. So the story. So people are coming back in. There's post holes. So you've got you've got Bronze Age or um, settlements on on Cranogs or whatever. But keep going. Yeah, so uh, the first huge transition. So we have a we have a period from about 9,700 BC right the way through to 4,000 BC, which is roughly half of the story, half of this era, this this episode of continuous habitation, when almost nothing happens in terms of human interference with the landscape. We're just hunting and foraging. Probably no more than 10,000 people in the country, so that's about the population of a small market town. And the, but the single biggest uh, landscape event in that era is not human interference. It's actually a tsunami that comes down the North Sea, caused by an undersea slide off Norway that that it, that takes out Shetlands, takes out the Orkneys. It's probably that tsunami that takes out Dogland and cuts us off from the continent. So we have a, a very hard Brexit situation where <laughs> we are severed from our Euromates instantly. You know, in, in a, probably in, in in minutes or hours, we, we become oh, islanders. No 
and um, and that that's the beginning of a, of, a, of a story of isolation. We are marooned on this island, 500 million mammals and a, and a few thousand human beings. And the population seems to have dwindled. But around 4050 BC, we have our first Euroshock and the farmers arrive in boats. Oh, okay. Everything changes. So that's the beginning of Neolithic. Okay, so farmers arrive from Europe. Um, and, and I suppose, obviously, it goes without saying, but the creation of Britain as an island, a geographical fact, huge impact on subsequent history, on our, yeah. our identity, on our, uh, um, our maritime heritage. I mean, you, you, you know, it's a, it's a foundational fact yeah. of British life, isn't it? That is absolutely huge. And uh, it, one of the frustrating things when you, when you try and try and investigate this, this, the, the, the severance of Britain from the continents, actually finding out when it happened. You know, you're basically having to go into, 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 into geology and, uh, and radiocarbon dating to try and find out when, when that happened. I think in our lifetime we're going to see some really exciting archaeology from Doggerland, aren't we? It's, it's, it's all out there. Yeah, it's, it's it's really... um, it, what is out there under the North Sea? One of the, the most remarkable books I've read in recent years was, was put together by three archaeologists who realised that the North Sea oil companies had over the decades accumulated this vast resource of data about oh, the seabed. Course, yeah. They analysed it and found that the oil companies, while looking for oil, had actually inadvertently mapped all these river systems on the floor of the North Amazing. Sea. You can actually see the lakes and river systems of Doggerland. Amazing. Amazing. Come on, let's keep going. Right, so we've got the Neil, we've got all these European farmers arriving. Yeah. Now, if they start to change the landscape. Yeah, it's devastating. Now, so they bring uh, domesticated animals. So, so Britain has no domestic animals at this okay. point, only white Pigs, animals. cows, Pigs, sheep. Pigs, cows, sheep. They bring seeds, emma wheat. They, they start cultivating plots, they start tending their animals. This is 4,000. This is about 4,000 4, BC. BC. Okay. 4, BC, yeah. Right, so just as the Egyptians are starting to really gear up things over there, exactly. we are getting the first signs of agrarian culture. Yeah, okay. and, and we're well behind the curve. So we are right out on the edge of the, of, of the European mm. landmass at a time when on the Euphrates they're busy living in villages and they're sedentary, yeah. they're living in communities and farming. So we're well behind the curve. And, and farming, meanwhile, has crept across Europe you know, year by year and, and has, has reached the English Channel, the, the, the French side of the channel um, and so we are if you like along with Scandinavia the last undeveloped preserve wilderness in Europe and then when it arrives it's devastating because it, it, they almost certainly brought disease because our hunter forager forebears weren't used mm -hmm. to living with animals and the transition happened very rapidly in terms of the landscape the farmers brought traditions of for example building a permanent monuments above ground so we get the long barrows we get portal dolmens we get uh, henges, causewayed enclosures. They were wonderful archaeologists called Richard Bradley spoke of them as being ultras of the earth. You know, the, the, the Neolithic farmers believed in shaping the landscape, altering the earth to their own ends, whereas their Mesolithic predecessors tended to... They're very soft footprint, you know, mm. so kind of leave, leave nothing but your footprints. Um, uh, very gentle. And presumably lots of cutting down trees. Lots cutting down trees, yeah. And so the wildwoods in Richard... In fact, the wildwood had already been been affected during the, the Mesolithic but once the farmers arrive it's, it's, it becomes a, a contest, it's the first of two massive contests in Britain, the contest between cultivation and farming and the wildwood, the wildwood gets pushed back and back and back and back and then by the time you get through to about 1500 BC you get the beginning, you get the first surviving field systems You're listening to Dan Snow's History. This is one of the old podcasts, but it's one of the best, with Nicholas Crane talking about history of the British landscape. More coming up after this. Hey, I'm Don Wildman. 
And on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage, add unlimited photos and videos, and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Is there a single acre of, let's start with Britain, which is left from our ancient past? Can I go and just commune with the, the, me, the Mesolithic world? <laughs> no, there's not, there's not, not. I'm afraid, Dan, there's not a single okay. acre left because right, re- the, the, it's, it's all been modified. Okay. Uh, that's not to say that there isn't a lot of beauty, of course. Hey, listen, but, I'm uh, a big fan, but, but okay, <laughs> that's interesting. Okay, so, okay, so these farmers okay, chop down trees, starting to build fields and grazing and sheep and everything like that okay we'd notice started to set up towns and things or no villages? that's a lot later no. okay right a lot, towns and villages a lot later so so we, we have small we have small communities of farmers who are probably still hunting and foraging as well so they're, they're, they're it's not as if they came in and imposed permanent settlements immediately that was a long process of evolution so we've got we've got a transition time when people are they're, they're growing their crops, they're keeping, they're tending their domesticated animals, but they're also still hunting and foraging because Britain is, is like a gigantic game park. Mm. You, know, you can live very well out in the woods and, and yeah. glades and along the seashores. So it's a, it takes a long time. And it's not until about 1500 BC that you see the first rectilinear, rectangular field systems preserved on, on the British landscape there on Dartmoor. But there were probably thousands of square miles of them by then. 
Okay, and population starts to go up. And this is controversial, isn't it? This whole idea of do 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 we actually create more calories and more population yeah. when we start to farm? I, I didn't yeah. realise what an exciting issue this was in, in the world of yeah. geo history. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I dare stray there. Okay, right well now, let's but not. Let's, uh, but briefly, but the population goes up, does it? Population goes up, um, and then why the population goes up is in a, does the population go up because people have found uh, food security by living in permanent settlements? Mm-hmm. Or are they are they pushing out and out and out and and, and the, the the pioneering uh, the pioneering uh, farmers also foraging and hunting and bringing in so much food that they're able to, to feed their feed their rising mm. rising communities and then subsequently gather together in these nodes. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a question of it's, it's difficult to un- unpick. Okay. But there are these there are these these permanent settlements appearing. Um, uh, by, or certainly, yeah. By the time you get to thousand BC, we, we're dotted in in, in year-round settlements. And do we see um, ex- exploitation of mineral wealth and, and empires developing and weapons and, and kings getting gold and copper and then becoming rich and then beating up other people? And when do we start to see that that sort of activity? Well, you can see in the, a very early sign of it was was in the probably the first or second generation of, of farmers who arrived um, because the the first big. Modifications to landscape are not actually long barrows or fields. They're flint mines in the South Downs. So there's a, there are about 400 different flint mines along the tops of the South Downs behind Worthing and Brighton. And they they didn't have to dig for this flint. They, they would dig it. You could pick it up off the surface. Geologically, the flint on the surface was identical to the flint in the subterranean seams. But they believed there was a that there was value in excavating from these mines. So, so even at this very early stage, we're having prized stone that was that was being probably traded or certainly certainly exchanged long distance. So we have stone from the Lake District making its way down to the Thames Valley, and stone from Rum crossing to other Scottish islands and so on. So, so stone's being traded. There's a really big um, transition in the Iron Age when we have um, the, the, um, um, uh, when people have migrated for reasons not, not entirely clear to hilltops. You get the first hilltop enclosures, probably stock enclosures, which then mutate into hill forts, and then, as you say, we, we you know elites are apparent on the landscape. Um, and Barry Cunliffe, the archaeologist, has actually plotted the location of hill forts in Wessex and, and would argue that that there were power centres mm. um, distributed to control blocks of land. They certainly feel like it when you clamber over them. Mm. It's wonderful. OK, so we, we, this is ridiculous. We have got this long journey to go, and we have hardly even started yet, and this podcast <laughs> is up. OK, so we, we've got these Iron Age hill forts now. Let's talk about what, what, what is the next massive change for our landscape? Is it the Romans? It's pesky Romans. I'd like to just not quite reach Romans, but, but okay. I know we've got to rush on. Okay. But there was because this, uh, this is a kind of developmental tragedy in Britain's story. Um, our, there, there came a point um, in the first first century BC when we came down from the hill forts and settled in in demarcated low-lying centres that have been given the name Oppida um, and there were about a dozen of them in southern Britain and they were they were proto-towns so they had their own mints they were trading with with Europe they were probably power centres of some kind and there were centres of population so so it has been argued these were proto-towns and so we're just at this point 10,000 years into our story, 10,000 years, we have just got to the point when you could argue we're, we're dipping our toes in the waters of civilization. we're in contact with the continent. And at that moment, we get invaded by this, mm. this army of, of psychopathic builders who <laughs> wreck the place and, and set us back 800 years. Wow, so, so. explain, how, why, why so? 
Well, uh, I, 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 I understand the, the romance of, of Roman fortresses and, and uh, hot bars and so on. But um, the fact is that when the Romans came, they, they imposed uh, their own idea of civilization on a landscape that was, that was peripheral to the empire, right on the very edge of it. And it wasn't resilient. So if you just look at towns, for example, we, had, we already had the beginnings of towns just before they arrived. They built around or established about 100 towns in, in Britain during their stay, along with long walls and, and forts and fortresses and all the rest of it. After the collapse of the Roman Empire, all of the towns disappeared. We had no towns left at all. They simply didn't introduce urbanisation in, in a resilient form. Oh, I see what you so mean. So that was okay. the Romans went. We then went back um, to effectively, in, in developmental terms, to, to, to the Iron Age. Mm. We call it the Anglo-Saxon era, the, the Saxons, the Jutes and... Uh, angles came across here and there, but the, the the buildings they were constructing were were were, were very like the Iron Age buildings. They were timber framed, reed thatch. Uh, they weren't enduring. They didn't build in masonry. You know, the Romans have brought all these amazing masonry structures, and uh, and and they were building for eternity. But they'd also sort of decapitated any indigenous building yeah. tradition. Okay, well, that, yeah. you're speaking, of course, I'm, I'm really thinking about my trips to the Congo and place post-colonial societies in Africa and elsewhere where. Yes, Europeans come in and do loads of building and amazing things and then just disappear yeah. and actually having completely ruined the society which yeah. they'd arrived supposedly to revolutionise exactly. and civilise. That's exactly it, Dan, absolutely. Just no, no, no resilience. And, uh, and it takes a very long time. You have to go forward to about 880 AD with King Alfred on the throne and he's, he's the, kind of the only big historical figure I really talk about in the book. When, and he reintroduces urbanisation on a resilient basis. So we have him establishing Britain, Wessex, his, his, his land is under threat from the Vikings, well, more than under threat, it's under siege from the Vikings. Um, and he, he establishes these, these burrs, these, these walled urban settlements that have, have two main functions. They're, they're defensive structures for, for his, his population, his people, but they also have a market function as well. So they've got this economic function. And, and this, of course, is a beginning of... This is a beginning of permanent urbanisation Sustainable, yeah. Sustainable urbanisation, okay. Alfred. So let's talk about um, Britain in the period of Alfred and obviously in Wales and Scotland, lots of diverse and dynamic kingdoms rising and falling, as in other parts of England at the time. Uh, to, let's do an invoice, um, an inventory check. An animals, native species, how, how they... Are they been hammered or are they... Are they doing all right yeah they've been hammered so the aurochs for example which was the uh, this magnificent you can't really call it a wild cow because it was much more magnificent it's an enormous wild bovine monster that used to roam the mesolithic forests of britain with huge horns uh, fantastic for hunting you know a huge amount of meat on an aurochs that that was that was driven into extinction by probably by by the Bronze Age. Um, wolves are still prowling, and by the time we, we in, in the age of Alfred, we still have wolves and bears. Um, there's a, there's a really interesting moment in uh, if we skip forward to uh, the 16th century, where there's a wonderful map maker called Timothy Pont, Scottish map maker, who um, has rather, rather been overlooked by by the history books because he uh, he only left sketch maps, but he drew a sketch map of, of Cape Wrath, which is a northwestern point on the British mainland um, at a time when at the other end of Britain London was the biggest city in Britain and population of 75,000 Timothy Pont drew this map of, of, of uh, northwest Scotland with uh, and he, he labelled it extreme wilderness mm. and uh, this was the 
kind of the moment the wilderness really vanished from the British in, landscape. Just before the Industrial Revolution. Then. Yeah, yeah, before the yeah. Industrial Revolution. And in fact, there was, there was an interim episode of of, of interference, landscape interference, uh, in in the 1620s. When, if you imagine, if you go turn back and, and think of, of uh, the post-glacial landscape as having two wild elements: the forests, the wildwood, and wetlands. The forests had been uh, not entirely wiped out, but driven, uh, massively reduced by the 16th century. So, you know, as you know, I mean, we're running out of shipbuilding timbers and so on. The wetland was still pretty much intact. And all the way down eastern England, there's this long chain of wetland from the Humber right the way down to Cambridgeshire. So these huge glittering fens separated by, you know, the Isle of Ely, Isle of Axholm and so on. But in 1621, uh, uh, Vermoyden, Dutch engineer, comes over starts draining our wetlands and that's the end of the wilderness properly so we've got we've got the wetlands being converted into unbelievably rich agricultural land and that's a big big moment so that predates the industrial revolution but it's it's laying the basis for interfering with nature on a massive scale and running out of the back of the draining of the wetlands we have the subversion of these wonderful natural river systems a thousand of mm. them by building canals yeah um, we've we've canalized and and yeah. sewerized our rivers exactly. in this country haven't exactly. we we've got no it's impossible to talk about ancient rivers because people don't understand what they were yeah. they're big highways i agree um so let's let's talk about that sort of spasm of early modern changing our landscape uh we we do the fens and then talk about enclosures because this is obviously a big historical thing. This sort of enclosures and private property, and the emergence, particularly in England and and the, and the Lowlands of Scotland, of this sort of patchwork field system. We now think is this ancient and immortal um, British landscape, which actually is quite recent. Yeah. So, so the enclosure enclosures was a very long drawn out process. There was a. Uh, the medieval field system was was uh, one of open fields where you had, uh, and you can still occasionally, well, actually, you can still see them out of train windows mm. uh, across central Britain. But the, the, the ridge and furrow, if you if you look at a train window in, in a low light in winter, you'll see these these ridges yeah. and furrows in fields. So those were the like corrugated fields. iron, corrugated iron, yeah. exactly, yeah. So these were the open field systems, and they were huge. So in any one village uh, each villager or each family would have have their own strip they would cultivate it on their own and these banks of earth would pile up deliberately because it allowed the the runoff the water to run into the into the furrows and drain to the edge of the field however um it was pointed out much later on during the, the agricultural revolution this was a ridiculous way to farm because all the nutrients were washed out of the field in these furrows. So although we're sentimental about original furrow now, once you had field drainage pipes put underneath the uh, underneath the fields, you could you could then plough all of these ridges and furrows out, and then the the um, the, the fields were systematised into by through enclosure, either by landowners driving the villagers off their land, control taking hold of a, a, a their their entire holding, and then rationalizing economically rationalizing these these huge open fields into small rectangular blocks so we're sentimental about these rectangular fields now but actually they're moderately recent imposed structures and and then we had parliamentary enclosures which kind of followed in after that and and and, uh spelled the end to open field farming but uh, so we went from the medieval open system of original furrow to much smaller rectangular blocks. And now we're in a, in a later generation of industrial farming where you've got uh, the smaller fields have been enlarged into larger fields and we have you know, contract farmers playing mm. all night and all that kind of thing. With GPS tractors GPS, self-driving. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, but what's interesting, at the same time to get that huge rationalisation in the countryside, we also see 
the world's first industrial revolution. And that, that must yeah. be an enormous impact on Britain's landscape. It's huge. And there's a fascinating debate about, you know, why, why did Britain lead the world into industrial revolution? And, and you know, we, you, you've talked earlier on about ge geography uh, steering history sometimes. And um, I've oft, I was often wondering while I was writing this, what effect did... did um, uh, this this extraordinary river system, river, river network we have on Britain have on on, on the industrial revolution. Because when you think about it, you know the, the industrial revolution we couldn't have happened without without coal and without iron, and without water. Now the thing about about uh, the industrial revolution is that as much as anything, it was a it was a, rev it was a, 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 a revolution in ideas. So lots of individuals, not necessarily even educated, but coming up with brilliant ideas. It might it might might be cotton spinning or whatever, and you, uh, nearly everybody had access to access to fast-moving water in Britain, so almost everyone could have a lab in their back garden. And the nature of the Industrial Revolution was that it, the Britain's population rocketed at unbelievable speeds. So by um, uh, around 1850, we've got 21 million people living in Britain, and we cross a critical threshold when... By around the mid-19th century, uh, we, we, we reached that tipping point when more of us are living in towns and cities than in the countryside. And now, 90% of us are living in towns and cities and, and 10 in the countryside. So we crossed that tipping point in the 1850s. And the population was growing so fast that housing had to be reactive. You know, there was this idea about you know, Thomas More Utopia um, in the early 1500s, and he had he, he did this wonderful image of... of, uh, of, of of urban settlements surrounded by green space that was picked up by the Newtown movement, Ebenezer Howard and so on. The reality was, in the Industrial Revolution, all we could do was to react to a population that was effectively out of control by building vast numbers, I mean, thousands and thousands of small back-to-back -back houses, industrial housing, which very quickly became slums. So if you read you know, Engels on Manchester and uh, Dickens, you'll, you know, Britain with all of these industrial centres were, were dominated by these, uh, by machine housing, mass-produced housing. Uh, and it, there was nothing utopian about it at all. It was purely a desperate measure to house the workers to keep this, this population going. And of course, now, today, we're having to live with the artifacts of that because we now have vast amounts of housing stock in places that, that, that mm. can't provide employment because in the modern world, we've moved to service economy and industries in other parts of the country. And traditionally, I suppose, you'd have shut down Stoke-on-Trent and moved over to Cambridge. Well, <laughs> so, of course, that's not an option anymore. No, it's not an option. And uh, so we have, we have what is a, a real housing crisis. Uh, and uh, you know, the announcement this week to build 100,000 prefabs, really historic moment, really historic. You know, going back to the post-war moment when Beaver Brook and, and uh, the announcement to build three, 300,000 uh, houses urgently after the Second World War to, to rehouse people who had lost their houses through bombing and so on. You know, we have reached that stage again where we have a housing crisis, a real genuine housing crisis. A whole, pop whole generation who have nowhere to live, who won't have anywhere to live, they can't afford to, to get their foot on the ladder. So we ha and, and people need to live where there's work. Um, otherwise, we, we, we create massive transport issues, shifting as people are migrating every day to their place of work. Well... That, that was a sort of totally crazy rampage through the whole of British history. I think you should we should do a whole series of podcasts on this subject. It's so fascinating. And um, but I suppose I guess lastly, when you wrote this mighty book and you spent all these years thinking about it and touring and walking around the whole United Kingdom and beyond, what are the sort of big thoughts that come out of this? What what do you think our geography, both physical and human, is telling us about the state of the country today and also perhaps where we're heading? Oh, Dan, that's a bit cosmic. Um, yeah, it's you a know. Bit 
Ah, uh, right. You caught me out. Okay, th- th- that's really tricky. I, I mean, I think if you look back through time, the the really huge systemic changes have been to do with the Earth's natural systems. So the beginning of this story 12,000 years ago begins with an episode of climate change, uh, seven degrees centigrade, 50 years, unbelievable. unbelievable. You know, we're talking now about getting preparing ourselves maybe one, 1.5, two degrees over the next 100 years. Yes, That's pretty extreme in itself, actually. You know, a one degree change, as we know from the past, I mean, you'll, you know about the Little Ice Age and, and when the Thames froze over in the 1600s, that was probably a, a drop of about one degree. We're very exposed in Britain to, for example, the, the Gulf Stream turning on and off. No, don't. It's terrifying. Uh, so it was, the, it was probably the Gulf Stream turning back on in 9700 BC that opened this thermal window that we're in now. Um, uh, and if the Gulf Stream turns off, then we go back to a southern Alaskan climate, um, which is roughly where we're, we're level with latitudinally. So, the, no, so that's not said. So it is, it is critically important, critically important that we address uh, greenhouse gases. And there's no question that that is, the, in terms of uh, preserving our island habitat for future generations, that is number one priority. And, and when you write this book, did you, this, coming back almost to this central point of Britain being an island and the development of culture and ideas and, and our relationship with Europe, do, do, do you, are you more likely now to think that geography is destiny at the end of this book? Do you know, yeah, I, do you know, Dan, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to be the president of the Royal Geographical Society at the moment, and uh, there isn't a, a role that for me is more important to be doing at the moment. It, it is something that I, uh, it's, it's a belief system for me, geography. Um, uh, I, I, I believe that uh, a, a subject that, that informs you about people, places, the environment, is, is, the, is, a, is a basic foundation course for life. It certainly has given me everything I've ever, ever done, it, all the work I've ever done in my life, and the whole way I look at the world, it comes from geography. Uh, I think it's, 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 as I say, a foundation course for life, and it, but it is, it, and it's something that, that, will, that will equip future generations to deal with some really massive issues. Nearly every massive issue we read about in the news feeds today, whether it's uh, migration, whether it's climate change, sea level rise, urbanisation, they're all geographical stories, um, and we need more geographical experts. You know, this, this has to be the age of the expert. In that- I'm sure you'll share my frustration that for some insanely bizarre reason in the UK, you're forced to choose between history and geography when you're 14 years old, and then you're allowed to give up both of them at 16. And they were my two best subjects. I completely shafted my own education by having to give up one of my... And I could never understand. They were always two sides of a a coin. And uh, So bring about that positive change in your illustrious position. Absolutely. Absolutely. Agony, yeah. yeah. Um, Nicholas, thank you very much. Nicholas Craden's book... The making of the British landscape is out and it's brilliant. And what are you, are you on Twitter and Facebook or anything? How do people follow you and get in touch with you? Have you got a website? Or I'm, like a, I'm a rather slack Twitterer. Okay. Um, I, ought to, I ought to improve. Well, I ought to do better. Okay, yeah. what, what's your, what are you on Twitter? All oh, right, I haven't got a clue, I'm afraid. Okay, never wrong. mind. Look for Nicholas Crane on Twitter. He's <laughs> awesome. I'll tweet out. Now, listen, we've been ignoring Facebook Live. Just quickly, before we go, because we've, oh, yes, we've, got, we've, got, uh, we've got to leave and let you get on with your life. How does your work relate to Oliver Rackman's history of the countryside? Oliver Rackman. Oh, yes, yeah. well, okay, this is a good point. So we talked about Rackman and, and Hoskins. What, what are the big things that, you, that you've updated? Uh, well, I, I, I hesitate to say update, I've updated anyone. I'm a storyteller, and I, uh, this is a story about the British landscape. I'm not an academic. Uh, I wanted to write a clean, linear narrative, a geographical narrative uh, from 
the end of the Ice Age, the present, this episode of continuous habitation. So then the man, the writer who inspired me most was, was Hoskins, who wrote this book, The Making of the English Landscape. Oliver Rackham uh, wrote wonderful books about the countryside. And of course, and I've pilfered material from his books, uh, particularly to do with the Wildwood. Um, but I, I've used thousands of sources. Um, I didn't put them in the book, but there are, um, I've forgotten how many footnotes there were, but thousands of footnotes scaffolding to allow me to, to make this book. And I used archaeology a huge amount. So this could not have been written without Britain's brilliant archaeologist. This is, if anything, a book written um, with the help of archaeologists. They were, You've mentioned the, a few of them today, like yeah, the legendary Barry Cunliffe. On Cunliffe the absolutely, Barry Cunliffe and, uh, you know, the, and um, uh, Richard Bradley, uh, a huge figure in the Mesolithic. Um, and uh, he, he, I was very, very inspired by his work as well. Well, listen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you to everyone who's watching. Sorry we've had some connection problems. We've got the Wi-Fi issues here, obviously. Um, Nicholas, thank you very much. Dan, great pleasure meeting you. See you next time. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Hi, just a quick message at the end of this podcast. If you could go to wherever you get your podcasts, if you could give it a five-star rating, if you could share it, if you could give it a review, I'd really appreciate that. Then from the comfort of your own homes, you'll be doing me a massive favour. Then more people will listen to the podcast, we can do more and more ambitious things, and I can spend more of my time getting pummeled. Thank you. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else custom spray five and one only from rustoleum selling a little or a lot shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.